Good morning. Thank you, worship team, for that. That was beautiful. It is a pleasure to see you all this morning. This is my favorite season of the year, Advent season. It is indeed the greatest for me. It's in this season that we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord. It's this season in which everything gets dark really early and we see Christmas lights and it just brings joy to our hearts, that joy that should be there as Christians for every day of the year. It just seems to be ignited whenever we see all of these things that we use to celebrate Christmas. And it's amazing, and I am glad you are here on this first Sunday of Advent to worship with us. My name is Jason Averill. I am the assistant pastor here at Grace, and we are starting a sermon series on Advent, coincidentally enough. <laughs> and the sermon series is going to be Christmas in Luke. That's, uh, that's the title of it. And so we'll be spending some time in Luke this Advent season and uh, kind of plumbing the depths of what, uh, what the gospel writer has for us. So today, we're going to be starting right off with the Annunciation of Jesus to Mary. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you have drawn each of us here according to your eternal plan that... Uh, you knew before the foundation of the world where we would be today and that you planned for us to be here worshiping you. Lord, that is a wonderful gift that you have given us. It's a wonderful gift. Jesus, we do thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for coming to us and taking on our flesh also that you could claim us as your own. Holy Spirit, we do ask, Lord, that you be at work in our hearts today, that you illumine us to our Savior Jesus. Let us see him in this text most clearly. Thank you for all of your work in our lives. Amen. All right, so like I said, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent, you know, historically, it's the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus. It's where the eternal God actually took on flesh and became a human being, a, a lowly baby. And that's the first part of it. We're looking back at the incarnation. But the other part of it is that we're actually looking forward to the second advent. We're looking forward to when Jesus comes back. So it's kind of apropos that we, we start advent right after we finished last week with the second advent and the return of our king. Now we know more of what we are actually looking forward to here. And we look forward to that with eager anticipation and with hope, with a good deal of hope. You know, Christians, we're called many times to be the people of hope. That is our role. We are to keep hope alive. And sometimes, though, it seems very, very hard to keep hope alive. You know, we go through our lives, and our hope in the second coming, our hope in the resurrection, our hope in eternal life, even our hope in salvation, it's challenged constantly. Satan issues those challenges for many, many reasons. 
you know, and it can come in many different forms. Sometimes we're challenged, like we discussed last week, on the timing of it. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised to come back, and he hasn't come back yet. It seems like it's taking a long time. Is he really coming back? Sometimes he challenges us through sufferings. And we go through the trials of this life, and we think, man, this can't be real. My hope is in vain. If it was real, I wouldn't be suffering like this. Sometimes we're challenged just because we find things in the Bible that God calls us to that are hard to do. Hard to do. We know what we should do but it seems hard. So the question is, how do we keep our hope alive as we wait for the second advent? How is it that we can keep a vibrant faith while we wait and suffer under all of these attacks? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the annunciation that uh, goes to Mary. It is from Luke chapter 1. Starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass. All their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. So let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So... How do we keep that hope alive? How do we keep our faith vibrant as we wait for the second advent? Excuse me. Bring me my water, please. Very dry throat for some reason. So we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see three different things from it. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in this passage, we're going to be looking at Mary and her faith, and we're going to be looking at our hope, 
our hope for this life. So three things, Old Testament promises fulfilled, Mary's faith, and our hope. So what are the Old Testament promises that are being fulfilled here? You know, we can go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, all the way back to the beginning of the book, and we can we start having promises of the coming Savior. You know, from Adam to Abraham to Moses. In Adam, we get this declaration that someone's coming, coming to put to death the snake, that he's going to crush his head. And in Abraham, we get this promise that Abraham's offspring will be more numerous, more numerous than all the stars in heaven, more numerous than all the sand on the seashore. In Moses, we are told that there's a prophet coming that's going to be like Moses, but much greater than Moses, and that he is going to give God's law in fullness and truth. And all of these are there in the background. This is the background knowledge of everything that we're working with. They're all implied. They all speak to the identity of our Savior. But again, they are all in the background here. And there are some specific things that Gabriel calls our attention to and calls Mary's attention to in this passage. So what are those things? What are the promises that Gabriel talks about as being fulfilled? So, many of them can be drawn out. We can actually probably nail down a good 10, 12 of these references. But we're going to just focus on three. Three, maybe four. Maybe four. So, they're kind of the most prominent. And the first that we're going to start with is this section here. It's in verse 32. Gabriel says, He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, the prophecy that he's talking about is actually from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has gone to the Lord, and he's told the Lord, hey, I'm going to build you a house, Lord, because of all the great things that you have done for me. You need a house. And the Lord corrects him, and he says, no, David, no. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build my house, because I won't have a man of violence build my house. And then God gives David this glorious prophecy Starting in verse 12 of 2 Samuel, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise, <clears throat> raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so we see it right there. The prophecy that's given all the way back in King David's time. That's a thousand years before Gabriel spoke to Mary. That prophecy was that somebody was coming. The Savior was coming. And that Savior would be a king. And he would reign on David's throne forever. 
that he would be considered the, the son of God, that that is how God would look at him. All the way back in 1000 BC, way before Gabriel came to Mary. And we see the fulfillment here, that this is indeed coming to pass. The waiting of Israel was actually coming to a close, at least on this point. The next one that we see is in Isaiah chapter 7. And we see this in our passage here when Mary says to Gabriel, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And then he reminds her. He reminds her of this passage all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7 when the Lord is giving a word to Ahaz and he's, Ahaz has refused has refused the Lord. Ahaz was to declare a sign to know that the Lord was actually telling the truth, that the Lord would keep his promises, and Ahaz refused. And so the Lord gives him this sign. In, in <clears throat> verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's 700 years, maybe 600 years, probably around 700 years before Gabriel went to Mary. This prophecy was spoken. And Mary's question here is very poignant, and she's saying, how can this be? And Gabriel reminds her, you know what? It's been prophesied by Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive, shall bear a son. And this son will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then if we go to Isaiah chapter 9, we have this iconic Christmas text. And starting in verse 6, we have, for, <clears throat> for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's declared, it's declared here by Gabriel that this is coming to pass. That the Savior who was to come and establish <clears throat> his throne forever and to rule over the house of Israel forever. That Savior is being born. And these are the promises that God is giving through Gabriel to Mary. And to anyone who reads Luke's gospel, these were recorded for a reason. They weren't just for Mary. If they were just for Mary, we wouldn't know anything about them. No, they're for us too. Because it's important that these promises that were made back in the Old Testament are now being fulfilled. That they have started to come to pass. He's actually referring, in referring to those promises, you know, he only refers to specific sections. But as he refers to them, you know, Mary knows her Bible fairly well. Every Israelite knew their Bible reasonably well. And so whenever they heard these passages, they wouldn't just be hearing, oh, to a virgin will be born a son. They will be hearing, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
whenever they hear that this Savior to come, that his throne is to be established forever and that he is to rule on the throne of David, they won't just hear that. They'll also hear in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where it says that a light has come to a people who have dwelt in deep darkness. That's what they would hear. They have that fuller picture. Sometimes that escapes us. There's also this veiled reference here to Genesis chapter 3, going all the way back to the first promise of the Savior. In Genesis chapter 3, what do we see? It's in verse 315, and we see this declaration to the snake. It's in the curse. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That it's her offspring. It's not Adam and Eve's offspring. It's not the man and the woman's offspring. It's her offspring. This is one of the things that people point to whenever they talk about the virgin birth and that it was prophesied. That it was prophesied that the coming Savior would be born of a woman but not born of a man and a woman. It'd be an offspring specifically of a woman. And God, through Gabriel, gave this to Mary and to us to bolster our faith, to bolster our hope, to keep that faith and hope alive. So let's look here at Mary's faith. You know, we actually don't see or hear much from Mary in this passage there's really just about three little glimpses that were get given. You know, in verse 29, we have Gabriel. He's come to her. He's given his greeting. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you again. That's hitting that note of Emmanuel, the Lord being with her. And then he, <clears throat> the text says, but... She was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She heard from Gabriel and she was afraid. That doesn't seem to be like a response of faith or a hope. No, she's greatly troubled. Now, it is understandable, honestly. You know, whenever anybody in the Bible meets an angel, they usually fall down on their knees and try to worship the angel because the angel is so awesome. You know, our picture of angels now are really those little precious moments, angels, with the little cherub and the, the cute little face. But that's not the angel that is talked about in Scripture. In Scripture, angels were terrifying. And it's actually a pretty good sign of her faith here that while she was scared, she actually kept her wits about her. She was greatly troubled, probably even terrified. But she didn't let that control her. In verse 34, we hear it from her again when she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? She asks a question about, the, about what he has told her, that she's going to bear a son because she sees this kind of logical fallacy here. You know, something is going to happen. Something needs to happen because I'm a virgin. I can't bear children right now. And then in verse 38, we have this iconic end to this section. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Now, given the last statement, many people throughout history, and even now, you know, they raise Mary up as having this amazing, strong faith that's almost superhuman. It's almost unattainable. It's not something that we ourselves could have. In fact, in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, they make her special. She's not like the rest of the hoi polloi. She's better. So much better that in the Catholic tradition, she's sinless at the time that she conceived Jesus. They raise her up because of her faith. Now, her faith is strong to be sure. It's to be commended to be sure. But, and there's this striking comparison, though, that's made here. It's, we actually don't see it in the text that we just read. We actually have to back up to the beginning of Luke. Because Luke seems to be emphasizing these two stories. We have Zechariah and Mary. And Gabriel goes to both. And when Zechariah sees the angel, he has a reaction very similar to Mary. And this kind of clues us in that Luke wants us to actually compare the two. And so he sets things up to invite that comparison. And so just to refresh your memory on the story of Zechariah, I know you all read it this morning, but um, for those of you who haven't, you know, Zechariah was a priest and he's married to Elizabeth and he's advanced in age. Advanced in years. He's serving in the temple. So he's, he's in Jerusalem. And the priests at this time, they would actually draw lots to see who went into the holy place. And most times, a priest would only go into the holy place once. And he actually, this is his time as he goes into the holy place. He's selected by God to be there. And then Gabriel shows up and announces that he's going to have a baby. And he's troubled, just like Mary. He asks a question of, of Gabriel, just like Mary. Verse 18 says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. His wife, Elizabeth, had been barren. And they hadn't had children yet. And they're both advanced in years, well past childbearing years. And of course, we know that that's not an impediment to God. That's happened before. All the way back in Abraham. God has that power. And yet, Zechariah asked this question, similar in some respects to Mary's question. He says, how shall I know? Except that the question that he asks is a little bit different from Mary's. Mary says, how will this be? How will this come about? That's what that means. There's no real doubt in her question. She's just asking information. She's asking, how in the world will this happen? I really need to know. But Zechariah, he responds with a question of unbelief. How will I know this? And Gabriel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and un unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
Gabriel knew that the question wasn't being asked with a heart of belief. It wasn't being asked with a heart of faith. It was being asked with a heart of unbelief. And so Zechariah is struck dumb. And while we get no indication that Mary went off and told a whole bunch of people about her visit with the angel, we do get an image of Zechariah trying to. He goes out of the temple and he, he tries to communicate what happened to anyone he can find with gestures, but nobody can understand him. It's interesting when we look at Zechariah compared to Mary, because really he should have been the most prepared, the one who had the most faith, the most hope. He was a priest. He was ministering in the temple. It, he, he had been chosen that very day by lot to go into the most holy place. The holy place, not the most holy place. Big difference. He had been chosen to do that. He should have been the most faithful. The more faithful out of the two, at least. But, and Mary, you know, she was young. She was probably in her mid-teens, yet she ends up having more faith in God than Zechariah. Why? How could she have more faith? Zechariah seems to have let his hope slip. The waiting had become unbearable. We know from Gabriel and his interaction that Zechariah has been praying for a son for a long time. Maybe he had even reached the point where he had stopped praying. But Gabriel, when he approaches Zechariah, he says, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. This was your desire. It's here. It's finally here. And yet, he doesn't believe it. He doubts. His hope in God has slipped. But Mary's, hers hadn't. She responds, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Yeah. So that's Mary's faith. It is a strong faith. It's a vibrant faith. It's a true faith. And she keeps her hope alive. But what about our hope? What about our faith? Going back to the first question, how do we keep our faith alive? How do we keep our hope alive and vibrant as we wait on the Lord, as we wait for that second advent? Well, there are a lot of ways, but in general, we kind of follow the example that's laid out here in, with the story from Mary. You know, what was the first thing that she went through, the first thing that Gabriel approached us with? approach her with, other than the greeting, behold, highly favored one. He directs her mind to the promises of God, the promises that are now becoming fulfilled. You know, there are too many of these promises to list here that have been fulfilled. But he directs her mind to some specific promises we have a wealth of promises in the Bible that have been fulfilled. A wealth of promises that we can look to. 
Genesis chapter 15, I mentioned it before, this is when Abraham was given the, <clears throat> by God the, the sure knowledge that his offspring would outnumber the stars. That's an awesome hope. And we actually see it being fulfilled here and now because all Christians are Abraham's offspring. And we outnumber the stars in the sky. I know that. Ask any astronomer. Not, not the stars in the universe. The visible stars in the sky. We outnumber that. That promise has been fulfilled. And we look to that. And that bolsters our hope. In Ezekiel chapter 47, we have another promise. In chapter 40 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel started having this vision. And it was a vision of this heavenly temple this temple that was to come, and it was very detailed. And then he gets to chapter 47, and out of this temple is flowing the river of life. And the river of life has gone out to all the nations, and it gets progressively wider and deeper as it goes. And wherever it touches, it brings the nations to life. And the trees of life sprout on its banks. And what are we told by Jesus in John chapter 7? That he, he is that river. That out, and in John chapter 4, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, he says that if anyone comes to him, out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. It's the same image. It's being fulfilled now as Christians go out fulfilling the Great Commission as Jesus goes and dominates the world and brings the world under his dominion, that's what's happening. The river of life is going out, and it is reviving the nations. And we see that promise fulfilled. Jesus' birth hasn't happened yet in the text, but it happens in Bethlehem, and that was actually foretold all the way back in Micah. John the Baptist and his ministry, that's foretold in Malachi chapter 4, that somebody was coming who would prepare the path of the Lord, and we see that that happened. Jesus' death and his resurrection, all of that was foretold, and we see it coming to pass. We see it has been fulfilled. We also look... You know, just like uh, Gabriel directed Mary to look at what God had promised that was coming true, he also directed her to certain signs that were, that were going on. And in particular, there was a sign given to her about her cousin, Elizabeth. And we're told this in verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. She was given a tangible sign. By this time, Mary had probably heard that Zechariah had been struck dumb. She may have even heard by this time, since it was the sixth month, that Elizabeth was pregnant. Maybe, maybe not. We don't really know. But we do know that Gabriel gave her a sign something that she could look at and actually see happening that verified what God was doing. And we have those signs too, some that we can look back at, some that we look on now. The spread of Christianity over the world, the gospel being preached in all nations, 
the conversion of the Gentiles, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the virgin birth itself. We have been given those signs that we can look at and meditate on, things that we can actually see, that God's word is true. And finally, we embrace our identity in Christ. You know, she, Mary here, she ends by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's finding her identity in who God says that she is. She recognizes that she is a servant. She recognizes that she is his servant, a servant of the Lord. And not only that, that she is a beloved servant. That he looks on her highly with great praise. And she looks to his word because his word is truth. And it's his word that's ringing in her ears. And that's our guide too. Because we embrace what the word says about us. What does the word say about us? It says that as Christians, we are the beloved servant. That as Christians covered in Jesus' blood, that when God sees us, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because he sees Jesus' record. And we embrace that identity. That we are beloved. And that we are his servant. More than a servant even. We are his sons. We are his daughters. Because that is what the word says about us. That's the identity that Jesus gives us. He claims us as brothers and sisters. And from his word, we also know that ultimately, our faith and our hope isn't up to us. All of these things are used to bolster our faith and hope, but they're all gifts. You know, we participate with them in some way, in some mysterious way. God works in us, our sanctification as we work. God bolsters our faith and directs us to bolster our faith. It's a very mysterious thing, but it's all a gift. It's all from God so that no one may boast. And we see this even with Mary. You know, imagine what would have happened to her. Imagine, if you will, if we just rewrite the story and instead of Gabriel showing up, he decides to take a coffee break. She's left with being pregnant. No idea what's happened. Her faith and hope, probably in her marriage to her husband, It was to the Lord as well, but her faith and hope would definitely be shaken. No, God didn't leave her alone. God himself took action to actually enliven her faith. God himself took action, and she responded to that. And it's God's doing. It is God's doing that he grew that hope in her. It's God's doing that he grew that faith in her. So what? You know, faith is a gift, you say, Jason, so that no one can boast. What can we do? 
You know, what can we do to actually bolster our faith? Well, I, I said a couple of them to start with, that we embrace our identity in Christ, and that's, that's key, that we understand the gospel and we understand who we are in relation to Jesus. We understand what he has done for us, that he actually lived a perfect life for us in order to clothe us in the raiment of his righteousness so that we are glowingly, sparklingly white and clean before the Father. And we know that. And we embrace what the Word says. But part of embracing what the Word says is knowing God's Word. There's no substitute for it. You can't actually embrace what God has said if you don't know what He has said. And so, you study. You study the Word. You meditate on it. And the more you study it, the more God will use that study and that meditation to grow your faith. The more your faith will be confirmed. The more your faith is confirmed, the more hope you'll have. The more hope you have, the more you'll want to study the Word, and it creates this feedback loop where you want to be closer and closer to Jesus, and He uses that in order to bind you to Him closer and closer, more and more progressively throughout your entire life. And this is a good time to start. You know, Advent season, it's a wonderful season. It's busy. It's frenetic. But it's like ready-made to read all the birth narratives. And that can just get you started and locked in. Locked in to reading and meditating God's Word and getting to know it in a real profound way. Remind yourself of God's work in salvation. That you didn't save yourself. Remind yourself that you were broken. And not just broken, that you were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Without hope. That you had been a person completely and utterly without hope. But God didn't leave you there. No. Instead, what happened? The eternal son, God himself, who is with God from the very beginning, just like we saw in John, became incarnate. He took on flesh. As the Westminster Confession says, he took on a true body and a reasonable soul. That is a thinking mind. And he did all of this giving up his glory, giving up his majesty, being born in the form of a servant, in the likeness of men, all so that he could claim you as his beloved brother or sister, that you could be inducted into the family of God, and that he, by inducting you in the family of God, he would make you alive. And not only that, that he has given you eternal life. He has actually won it. He has won it by living that perfect life that you need to live. He's done that. He's done it by dying the death on the cross for all of your sins. All of your sins have been taken from you, cast into the sea, nailed to the cross. There are many images were given in Scripture, but they are done. It is finished. And that is the work of salvation. And not only that, that he raises us up and he sends us out. 
He sends us out to participate in his salvation of the world. That we are his hands and feet. And all of that is God's great, glorious work in our salvation. Do you remind yourself of that? And in fact, you can remind yourself of it pretty easily during Christmas. There are many visual images that we have. You know, we have all of these things that we do for celebration. All of these amazing things that I just love. You know, I love Christmas lights like no one else. And the reason why I love Christmas lights is because of the imagery here. What's the imagery? Everything has gotten dark. Everything gets dark at like 2 p.m. now. You know, we're completely cut off from light. And yet, we have Christmas lights. And they're tiny. They're small. There's nothing to them. And yet, when we turn those Christmas lights on, they light everything up. And you can see them from miles away. The darkness has no power over it. Because a Christmas light, even though it's small, is light, and darkness is nothing except the absence of light. And so every time I look at a Christmas light, that's what I think. That's what I think. I think that Jesus is the light of the world who shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's what Christmas lights mean for me. When we bake all of these Christmas treats and have all of these feasts and all of these dinners that reminds me of the heavenly feast to come, where anything that delights my palate here is a poor shadow of what is going to be there. And I let that remind me of my heavenly home. I <clears throat> let that remind me of Jesus. I recontextualize these ordinary things that we do to celebrate the season and try to find a true gospel meaning in them. We have Christmas trees. Now, it's a weird practice to go chop down a tree and set it up in your house, but it's actually really beautiful if you have the right image in your head. You know, every year, my family, we, I got this railroad spike. It's about this long, and every year, I go to my children right before we decorate the tree, before we hang any other ornaments, I say, do you know what this is? And they say, it's a nail. And I say, that's right, it's a nail. And what does the nail mean? And they say, I was really proud this year. They came up with it on their own, probably because of repetition. They said, it reminds us that Jesus was nailed to a tree. And then I take that nail and I hide it in the tree until we take that tree down in March, if, if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> and I hide that nail in the tree. And I do that and I say, why am I hiding it in the tree? Because Jesus was nailed to a tree for our sins and that mystery was hidden for ages until it was revealed by God, the birth of his son. That was the start. 
you recontextualize those small, ordinary things that we all do without thinking about them. And let them remind you of Jesus. Let them remind you of your salvation. And finally, how is it that you keep your hope alive? How is it that you participate in this effort? One thing that's constant throughout all Scripture, but particularly in the New Testament, if you look at all of Paul's letters, is that they just resound with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is everything. We give thanks to God. We give glory to God. We thank him for his salvation to us. And we let that motivate us. How do we celebrate? How do we give thanksgiving to God in the Christmas season? We celebrate well. You know, we don't celebrate like dour people. Many Christians do, and I don't quite understand it. Christians have the only reason to hope in the entirety of the universe, have the only joy to be gotten in the entirety of the universe, and yet many times when it comes to celebrating, we're just not very good at it. It seems like unbelievers celebrate better than we do, and they don't even know what they're celebrating. No. We celebrate well because our king has come. He's been born. The light has dawned. And we act like that. And we celebrate like the redeemed people that we are, filled with joy, knowing that our king has already come and knowing that he will come again. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the entirety of the Christmas story. We thank you that, Lord, even that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that you sent Jesus to us to claim us as your own so that we might be made alive and dwell with you forever. Lord, as we turn to this Advent season, we, we ask, we beg, we plead, that you keep our faith lively, keep our hope in you strong, remind us of yourself in little ways throughout the entirety of the season that you love us. Give us that identity. Let us see ourselves, Lord, how you see us, a beloved servant, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, clothed in the righteousness of your son. It is in his sweet name that we pray.